Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. You know, we had some people when we were talking about Grab uh, ahead of its listing. We had some people who were really bullish, really, really bullish about Grab's prospects. But I think, Arun, you were more circumspect. And uh, Grab's share price slide, a reminder of the risks in any delisting, is, is a big headline. And so today, Arun, I thought we'd speak a little bit about how Grab has done since it made its trading debut on the NASDAQ last week through that merger with Altimeter Growth Corp. First up, everybody, time to welcome to Money and Me, one of our most favorite commentators to speak with because he makes markets understandable, Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks as always for having me. So it doesn't look so great for, for Grab. It was a hugely anticipated listing. Initially, a lot of exuberance. The shares closed about 875 on the first day of trade, and that was down 20.5% from the $11.01 closing price the day before. But then again, it was trading as Ultimator then. Um, the SPAC closed as high as 17 US dollars three weeks before the merger with Grab. And we did see the counter not going below the crucial $10 threshold uh, since its IPO offering. Fast forward to today, of course, last time I checked, Grab was trading at 8 on NASDAQ. So first up, Arun, your reaction to Grab's performance after its listing as a SPAC? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you were correct when last week when we were talking about it, I was probably slightly more circumspect about the valuation. And I was actually more surprised that there was that that initial pop of 20-30% upon the Grab listing as compared to it ending down. Nothing against the company. Don't take me wrong. I think it's a fantastic business, you know, to create $30, $40 billion or even $20, 10000000000 billion, whatever that, billions of dollars of value having been founded just 10 years ago is fantastic. But at $40 billion valuation, it was always going to be a tough ride, especially with the amount of institutional investor interest in terms of oversubscription of shares, et cetera, was nowhere nearly as much as we've seen for some other IPOs or SPACs and stuff. So a price correction was in order, I feel. I personally still think that the company is overvalued for what it's worth. So we might be seeing a little bit more of a correction in due course. But, uh, you know, still, it's great to see Southeast Asia on, on NASDAQ, obviously. Yeah, and we know we won't judge the performance of a stock based simply on its first couple of days of trading. But do you think there is a, this points to a trend of SPACs falling post, uh, you know, combining, post-business combination? Yeah, I mean, if you look at statistics, right, and I actually pulled out a couple of uh, hmm. data. I was reading this really interesting article, uh, especially on the back of uh, Crab's SPAC listing about how these things have performed. Very interesting to see. Firstly, the huge supply in the market in terms of uh, SPAC listings, right? So 70% of all IPOs are done through SPACs this year. More SPACs were done in the first quarter of this year, in 2021, than the entire of 2020, the entire calendar year, right? So you've got a huge amount of these potential vehicles just looking to try and reverse merger or acquire uh, these other startups or established businesses. If you look at SPAC ETF, and this is SPAK, uh, there's an ETF index, uh, which in, in, they have some formula that basically 
for investors to get a one-shot, uh, you know, vehicle to get exposure to all the SPAC listings. If you look at it from the peak of uh, in Feb 2021, which was where most of these SPACs peaked, it's down 35% as compared to S&P. That's been that's actually rallied 14%. We're starting to see a big divergence. But then, if you like, you know, peel the layers of the onion and you go into slightly more details, what's interesting is that. Uh, Firstly, 70% of SPACs currently are like trading below the $10 mark, right? Which means typically SPACs are listing at $10 and we can see a majority of them below what their IPO price is post-merger. The other thing that's really interesting is if you look at the SPAC when it's listed initially at $10 and it announces the news of its, the deal that it's going to acquire, Mm -hmm. Post th- that period from the SPAC being at 10 to the deal being announced, mm-hmm. there's a very nice run-up of the SPAC, which we saw in the case of, you know, Altimeter going up to like $16, $17, as you were mentioning. Right. But then six months after the deal announcement, there's been something like a 40% underperformance as compared to the market. So is this like a little bit of like a pump and dump kind of a game? I think it's nothing compared to, you know, the kind of bubbles that we've seen in the past, but it definitely does seem that it, this, it, this SPAC industry is one where you kind of like, you know, buy on the news and sell on the fact where post the actual announcement, okay, well, whatever cream there was to be there, let's try and take that off the table. And then that leads to the share prices being in kind of like free fall, right? So, right. I mean, Grab is a great example from 16 and a half, I mean, $10, yes, but then it went up to 16 and a half just like three weeks ago, and now it's at 8.7. So uh, it, it does seem that this industry needs potentially a little bit more regulation, education on the part of investors, that the retail investors are not holding the bag at the end of the day. I think, you know, among our bullish commentators, they were pointing to the fact that there was almost no redemptions when it came to, um, you know, the whole ultimate grab merger. And yet it seemed, though investors were in favor of the transaction, when it came down to their wallets... Um, they voted differently. That's very true. And, and that was a point, you know, that we also discussed, which I found a bit surprising given the valuation that there weren't more redemption, which was the case in other US IPOs, right? So it seemed like the few investors who were already there with Altimeter, they were more than happy with this deal, but it was all about the new money coming in, right? Like, because they had to raise obviously a lot more capital and that additional capital that had to be put in by institutions I think that was where the question marks kind of came in. I mean, just look at, again, you know, top line metrics. Mm. Looking at a valuation of 35 or $40 billion, this is a company that has about 14 to $15 billion of liability. And, and you take out the $3.5 billion of cash, right? So $35 billion valuation plus $15 billion of liability, $50 billion less, let's just round it up to $5 billion of cash, leads to a $45 billion enterprise value. And this is with sub $1 billion of revenue. So you're having these crazy uh, EV overpriced multiples of over 40. And just for comparison's sake, Uber, which sure might be a little bit more of a mature market player in a more mature market, it trades at like a five multiple. So you're talking about a huge discrepancy in uh, like market valuation. And yes, what Grab has obviously got going for it is the target addressable market and this whole digitization wave and and the huge aspect of uh, you know mid level market like uh, 
participants, uh, taxpayers, consumers coming into this digital space, right? So they're looking at a target addressable market growing from $50 billion to $180 or $200 billion over the next five years. So from that perspective, that are very nice tailwinds, but there is still a big question mark of true monetization where we've seen in more developed markets that ride sharing and food delivery might not quite cut it. They have to go into financials, and that's exactly what they're doing with Grab Finance. But then they start coming up against even the likes of Google and Apple then coming into the financial space, right? Along with obviously a huge number of fintech companies and the merger of GoTo. So it's not that clear as to uh, while, you know, the macroeconomic uh, tailwinds are there, mm-hmm. there are some more questions about the business model and profitability. So taking that risk reward into basis, it just seems like the share price might be a bit overvalued, even at current levels. That's a brilliant overview of, of Grab, I have to say, Arun. Um, taking a broader step back, what do you think investors need to understand about the nature of SPACs and how risk changes during the life cycle of a SPAC? Do you think it's important investors think about this? Absolutely. I mean, from the perspective, I mean, just going back to that number of how, uh, you know, I, I, there are like 170 SPACs since 2020. All of them, or a majority of them, the, the median of them, I should say, mm. outperformed the Russell 3000 from the point of the SPAC listing to the deal announcement stage. Right. So it's all about timing, right? By the looks of it. At, at least given the nascent nature of this industry, it has a bad reputation of what happened 10 years ago, uh, where, you know, basically there were a lot of rug pulls in this thing. Mm. So from that aspect, timing of IPO to deal announcement, if you can get lucky or you believe that the the promoter of the SPAC, like, the, you know, Shamat guy, larger than life presence in social media and CNBC and other media channels, if you can get in at the ground level and potentially try and exit out when the deal announcement's taking place, fantastic. You've outperformed, uh, you know, on a median basis, you've outperformed the Russell 3000 index and other indices. But at the end of the day, you know, the chickens do come home to roost and it really depends on what valuation these SPACs have tried to acquire these businesses. And it's a tough game, right? Because Mm -hmm. you have so many SPAC listings right now and there's so much capital sloshing around in the capital markets with so few deals that are going around. And if a SPAC doesn't acquire a company within a certain period of time, they have to give that capital back. And that kind of, in a way, incentivizes the fund manager, the promoter of the SPAC to go out and do an acquisition pretty much at any cost. And that's something Berkshire Hathaway, what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger recently were saying, just the sheer amount of capital is forcing them to, is making them unable to do any deals. And they have the luxury of you know, long-term capital which unlike a private equity fund and definitely a SPAC does not have. So all it does is with such a huge supply of capital, not that many deals that going around, the valuations just have to keep going higher and higher. And you can still live in this euphoria upon the deal announcement, but then when it actually comes to disclosing a lot more numbers, kind of like what happened to WeWork to some extent, right? Mm. Like when, when the majority of the world got to know what exactly is happening uh, behind this beautiful external story, a lot more question marks are being raised as compared to private investors who might only be looking at just growth metrics, public investors, just 
some, to some extent, I would say, or at least to a larger extent, they still do care about uh, profitability metrics. And that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult to value this business at these extremely high levels. Speaking of valuation, what's going on with tech stocks? Some say that the sell-off that we're seeing is reminiscent of the 2000 bubble and that it may not be over yet. And therefore, we should be looking at growth stocks instead. Uh, 22V's research, Dennis Debouchere, saying there could be more selling ahead, but he's not predicting a bust like the one in tech that took down the entire market in 2000. And what a bubble that was. So Arun, first up, um, give us your personal insight. Do you think what we're seeing now when it comes to the sell-off in tech stocks? Is any parallels with what we saw back in 1999? Yeah, I, I would agree with that thesis uh, personally. I mean, from the perspective of are tech stocks still quite overvalued? I believe they are. But is there a difference between, say, you know, like a Zoom trading at uh, 70, 100 PE multiple vis-a-vis Pets.com having a couple of billion dollars of valuation, I would say so, right? I mean, it's a company, solid product, all of that stuff. It's just valuations have gotten out of whack, which is very different from uh, the dot-com bubble, wherein, you know, any company, <laughs> retail or otherwise, just added a dot-com to the end of it and thought that they could go out in the market and raise billions of dollars of extra cash, leading companies to literally be dropping 96, 99% over the course of a couple of months, right, in terms of share price. So I think from that aspect, uh, you know, history definitely, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of 99 versus right now, I think is the value, is the valuation of the tech industry still in a relative bubble? I personally believe it is. Uh, for, to some extent, good reasons also. But on the other hand, do I think it's going to be like a 1999 crash where half these companies basically go belly up? I don't think so. I mean, because we've seen the world evolve a lot over the past 20 years. I mean, let's look at the two big tailwinds that this industry has. First and foremost, the aspect of COVID right now, right? Like the, this whole joke that's going around that COVID is the best CTO in the world because everyone's basically digitized or going down the path of uh figuring out how to implement technology in their day-to-day or core business principles, that's happening. And, and we've seen that in terms of not just bulletin points and PowerPoint slides, we've actually seen that in terms of increase of IT spend by companies and industries across the board. And has that provided a huge benefit to the top line of your Amazons, Googles, Zooms, uh, NVIDIAs of the world? Yes, it has. Has the market potentially gone overboard in thinking that the future growth prospects of these businesses are going to be the same as it was for the past two years? Absolutely. Uh, That's a large function of how the Federal Reserve and central banks across the world have basically kept interest rates close to zero and pumping in the economy with a lot more capital through, you know, bond issuances and stuff. So combining all of that, looking, you know, obviously hindsight is 2020, but did it make sense that tech companies' valuations have to go through the roof? I would say yes. But in the long run, does this mean that we might not, or long run as in like the next, say, three to six months, maybe a year, will we continue to see some more of a correction that's happening already? I believe so. And there is still a lot of room for it to go, right? Like valuations are not exactly sitting at such attractive uh, prices, which maybe they were back in, say, March of 2000, or give or take post the 
com bust if you bought at the lows of 2000 and then held you'd be making incredible gains uh, you know up to sort of 300% so i guess people are looking at the sell off now and wondering what sort of companies tech stocks should i be looking at or more importantly what should i be deciding against when it comes to buying tech stocks i mean obviously uh, you're going to be looking at earnings and whether or not there's turbulence there and, and price volatility and staying away from that. What what do you think should be considered when deciding against certain tech stocks? I, I mean, you're absolutely spot on with the aspect of if people have not taken leverage, they've gotten involved in companies that they believe over the next 5, 10, 20 years is going to do well, then buying right now versus even say like a 20, 30, 40% drop from here it kind of doesn't make a difference, right? I mean, if you think about Amazon, which is a great example, I think it dropped like 96%. Even after like it had slashed in half, if someone just held on to it right now, you're talking about like double digit compounded returns over the course of like 20 years, which is far better than pretty much most money managers that are out there. So I think from that aspect, it's really important to think about timing. The problem comes when, you know, investors try to get into this space hoping for like a 10, 20% pop in the share price purely because it's gone down by 40, 50% over the past, say, three or four months. And that's when the whole perspective starts changing, right? Because then it stops becoming about a long-term play about the business fundamentals and to see how it'll, you know, perform over the next 10, 20 years. But it's just hoping that, oh, because the share price dropped by so much, I can get into it right now and hoping that I can take profit in like a couple of weeks when it's kind of, you know, mean reversion to some extent. Mm. I don't think that works in these high growth, high valuation kind of segments. Coming to the things, you know, to address your point about the factors that I think people should try to be extremely careful about is, you know, peek into the earnings report, peek into the balance sheet, actually look at the fundamentals of the business, not caring about what has happened to the share price in the past, but instead trying to get a gauge of how the actual underlying business has done over the past two, three years. Do you believe that this was just purely a COVID one-trick pony kind of aspect where only because of what things were happening for the past two years has this thing made money? Or can you believe that over the next five, 10 years, there has been a seismic shift in how consumers will actually use that underlying product? Right? I think Peloton is a great example. And if I had to look at, say, Peloton versus Zoom, my money would be on Zoom a lot more than Peloton because, you know, we've gone through these things in the past where this new fitness fad comes into place and slapping on some tech onto it doesn't necessarily mean that the long-term fundamentals of the business corresponding to what the valuation is currently is justified, right? Not to mention that Peloton might, it, I, I think and hope it will continue to do well because it's doing good for society to make people fitter, but that corresponding to valuation, I still believe that it's extremely rich, right? So even if uh, Peloton's revenue growth tapers down, it does decently well, investors in the company at this price point might not be able to do so well. Whereas much more longer term, Zoom, I would say, right now probably still a bit uh, pricey, but if there is a decently bigger dip in the next couple of months, to me, I think it's a company that's genuinely revolutionized how business transactions take place. Absolutely. And from that perspective, you know, the next 10, 20 years, 
Mm. It's a 55, 60 billion dollar market cap company right now. Mm-hmm. Definitely something of interest for me. Unless, of course, another Zoom comes on and does what Zoom did to Skype. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the problem. That's the advantage and disadvantage of working with tech, right? Like to create the moat on a tech company is so much more difficult. You always need to be spending a lot more in R&D to ensure that you're at the front end of what consumers want. For sure, for sure. Before we let you go, Arun, um, what do you make of Singapore stocks for 2022? What is your look forward? We saw the STI in November hitting a high of 14.4% of the year. Um, but, you know, I was reading the, a Bloomberg article which sort of pours cold water on reopening hopes. It says Singapore's long-awaited reopen was flopping even before Omicron, uh, pointing to calculations of the very few numbers of people actually using our quarantine-free travel lanes. Surprisingly few, according to Bloomberg's calculations. So I suppose that would impact the the travel and hospitality hopes for resurgence. Uh, people perhaps less willing to visit Singapore, wondering, you know, what do we do if we're a family of six? Where do we eat out? And is it just too expensive, these COVID tests that we have to take if we're coming from Europe, where one test can can uh, hit about $300 for, for the test itself? So broadly, Arun, what are your thoughts on um, what we could possibly expect for the stock market here in Singapore in 2022? I don't know, Michelle. My personal opinion is that Western media kind of has like a bias against Singapore, where if you look at Bloomberg, Financial Times, a couple of other publications out there, hmm. uh, it just seems that there's a lot more of a negative edge towards uh, Singapore to some extent. It does seem quite and, sour, I have to say, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean having lived in Singapore for the past 14 years, and I would consider myself extremely lucky, the fact that I am living over here for the past couple of years, especially given how well the crisis has been handled. Now, okay, don't take me wrong. You know, were a couple of uh, rules that were put in place kind of weird where you could leave the country on VTL, come back, but you couldn't even go out with your family for lunches or dinners? Yeah, but, you know, in the fog of war, sometimes the decisions that are made are not going to be the most sensible. But yet at the same time, at the end of the day, the greater goal was to ensure safety of the residents, right? So from that aspect, has the country achieved it a lot better than others? I would find it hard pressed to say anything other than 100% yes. Coming to the investing aspect, I believe that the index is decently valued. Given the lack of opportunity, I would say, in deploying capital elsewhere, I really would like to think and hope that the equity market in Singapore, SGX, through its initiative that it's done of, you know, its version of SPACs also, family office getting set up here thanks to MAS, the whole VCC model coming over here trying to disrupt the whole Cayman and BVI entity set up. I think all of these things paint a really nice rosy picture for more capital to be deployed here. Mm. And coupled with valuations, I'm actually reasonably bullish. I'm not sure about 2022 specifically, Mm -hmm. but over the next three to five years, I think that the odds of the equity capital markets in Singapore improving a lot more significantly, coupled with the fact that, you know, it's got an advantage over Hong Kong right now, given the whole setup uh, with China, I do feel that there's a lot of potential here. Thank you so much, as always, for your insights. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app.
That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.